Welcome to Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast inspired by the Puritan practice of godly conference, or spiritual conversations among believers. These spiritual conversations offer practical spiritual help for Christian living. Hello, I'm Jeremy Lee, and this is Ordinary Fellowship. With me, as always, is Matthew McLaughlin. He's hey, Jeremy. More frustrated today? Yeah, He's, you know. You know, it's hard to take off one hat and put on another hat. And This uh, is true. And do all of that. Glad you're here and somewhat put together, Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what we can. Also with us is uh, Tim Scott from Christ Our Treasure. Yes. He's here with us again as we discuss the Holy Spirit. So glad to have you with us back in his dungeon because his knee's feeling better. <laughs> and not frustrated. Is that where your wife put when you misbehave? Yeah, she says go to go to your go to your room. <laughs> <laughs> Which means go to the basement and in your dungeon. Well, all your books are there, so it can't be that much punishment. Yeah, that's true. All right. So today um we're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about the baptism and the filling of the Spirit. Not that what we have said previously is completely uncontroversial. Uh, but today is really where uh, the controversy is between uh, Baptist and Reformed with our Pentecostal brothers. So when Pentecostals say of Baptists and Reformed people uh, that we don't believe in the Holy Spirit, this is one of the issues. And also next week when we talk about the spiritual gifts, that's one of the issues as well, where they're saying we don't believe in the Spirit because we have a difference of opinion with them on these issues. So uh, we're going to talk today about the baptism and the filling the Spirit. So let's get started. All righty. So let's start with this question. Where was the baptism of the Spirit prophesied? Throughout the New Testament, throughout the ministry of Jesus, he's prophesying it, but even before him, John the Baptist was prophesying. So uh, like in Matthew chapter 3, let me turn here real quick. I should have had it open. But Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, who was to come pretty shortly after John the Baptist's ministry, prophesied of a time when the baptism of the Spirit was going to happen. John seems to connect it with uh, eschatological events as well, hence the winnowing fork being his hand, separating the wheat and the chaff and all those kind of things. So even before the John John the Baptist was preaching it, you can find things in the Old Testament speaking of a time when the Spirit would be poured out upon all people and things like that. But when it comes to New Testament, it's right away in the beginning. This is how John talks about Jesus' state. He's the one who's going to baptize with the Spirit. And then we see it fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit's poured out in Acts chapter 1. Jesus says here in uh, Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in Acts chapter 2, that baptism of the Spirit happens uh, on the day of Pentecost, and the Spirit is poured out on believers there. 
And in Acts 2, 4, they say, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Old Testament predicted it. John the Baptist was preaching that Jesus was the fulfillment of it. And Jesus himself said, it would have been 40 days but before Pentecost, but uh, he predicted that the coming of the Spirit was soon. And then it happened in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit's poured out. So this is the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Anything I missed, Tim? No, no, no. I mean, because I mean, you got, uh, even though you didn't say it, you got Joel 2 in there, um, and then, you know, Zechariah 12 and all of that. So, which is ultimately what the apostles um, appeal to when it comes to um, what is happening on the day of Pentecost. So, yeah, I think, I think you've covered it pretty well. So after we see what you talked, we talked about next one, when next do we see the miraculous signs repeated or do we? So in, so this is the first instance in Acts chapter two, but there are other instances as well. So for Samaria, when the Samaritans believed the gospel, the spirit was poured out on them when the first Gentiles were converted. And then there's this weird issue in Ephesus uh, that, presents a lot of difficulty now only one of them is called the baptism of the spirit uh it's hinted at and acts in another place but i think it's fair since one of them is called that and they're all the same thing is happening in each case it makes sense to call all of them baptism of the spirit what this tells me then is that terms like receiving the spirit the spirit fell on the spirit came upon them or synonyms to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because these are the other words that are used in Samaria, a Gentile conversion in Ephesus. They all seem to be similar ideas that are fulfilling what John the Baptist preached and Jesus preached that the baptism of the Spirit would happen. We'll leave it there unless Tim has something to add about that. No, I mean, I, now, in, in all fairness, I will say that, you know, this is the, that is the, that is our that that is how we see uh, our, our like assembly of God brothers and some our Pentecost. And I know we'll talk about these guys here in a minute, but some of them other guys are gonna are gonna obviously um, disagree with with some of with some of that. But yes, I, I do agree with what you've said, um, and I think that I, I think it's uh, I think it's wrong for us to separate the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I don't think that's necessary. I don't think Scripture leads us to that reality. These are all references to the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Okay, so now let's wade into some controversy a little bit. We'll do it slowly. So <laughs> there are these two instances when. The baptism of the Spirit was already experienced by people who were already believers. So what are we to make of that in reference to what we just talked about? Yeah, so this is really where I know for sure that our Pentecostal brothers would disagree with us. I don't know so much about the terminology that, although Tim said it is, so, well, I guess I'll believe him. Um <laughs> But this, this I know, is where our Pentecostal brothers disagree with us. The Pentecostals see the baptism of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, uh, the baptism of the Spirit on the Samaritans, the first Gentile conversion, and then also in Ephesus. They see this as a, from my understanding, and I don't mean to misrepresent them, so if I am, forgive me, this is not the purpose. 
Pentecostals understand this to be a pattern for today. So uh, the baptism of the Spirit continues to happen. So the idea is that there's a kind of a second blessing. So you're saved, you're, you follow Christ, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, all those kind of things. But at a later point is when the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens. Sometimes it seems to be a crisis, like you're put in the position where, am I really going to fully follow God? And that's when this second blessing happens. There may be other ways of understanding it as well. But the important thing is they see this as a pattern, that you get you get saved at one point, and then at some point in the future, you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's when you speak in tongues and things like that to give evidence that you are truly a believer. So there's, the key is that there's a period of time between salvation and receiving the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and to that point, I, I would say, I mean, that there may be some shades of variation here and there from what you said, but by and large, no, I mean, you're right on the, the main topic uh, or the, the main, the main heartbeat of how Pentecostals and, and charismatics in general, I think would, would, uh, would understand, you know, the baptism of the spirit, that it's a separate work. We get to the spirit, the spirit is working to regenerate us, uh, to bring us to faith in Christ and then, and then apply salvation to us. But then there is a, there's a separate activity. There's a second unction of the spirit, if you will, whereby he then, he then comes upon us in a, in a full sense and he fills our lives. He overwhelms our lives with, with his presence. And we get a, a second grace, a second work of grace whereby we, we are, whether speaking in tongues, um, which is what I think most would hold to, or if it's some other, you know, more of a, more of a just, what was it? A holiness movement. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Was holiness. There's a there's a special holiness that is that is granted there, and we'll talk more about this. But I, Martin Lloyd Jones uh, and A. W. Tozer would probably fall into that. Right. Couple issues with this understanding that, and this is why we disagree with our Pentecostal brothers on this point. It's not because we deny the work of the Holy Spirit. We believe wholeheartedly in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We obviously have a different understanding than they do. First, we don't believe that the what we see in Acts ought to be considered a pattern for Christian life, uh, because it's only two cases in Acts where or the two of the groups experienced baptism of spirit when they were already believers. The other two groups experienced believers' baptism either at the same time that they were saved or like immediately thereafter with no real space and time. So it's not even a pattern in the book of Acts, to be fair. And then the other issue is the nature of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a transitional time from the old covenant to the new. And it's really, it's not a good idea to see what's happening in everything in the book of Acts as being normative. For example, the early church lived together in in a community together and shared everything. But this isn't the normative, even our Pentecostal brothers don't believe that this is the normative pattern for believers today. Not that you couldn't do it, but it's it's not the norm. It's not the rule that you have to go by. So I don't think it's a good idea to take this as a pattern because of this, the transitional time period that we're talking about. And then the other and the bigger issue is there are clear passages that teach that every Christian has the Spirit. 
1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. I'm going to go ahead and reference it now because it's going to be talked about in a minute. But for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This passage is pretty clearly is saying that all Christians are united together by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 tells us that you're not in Christ if you don't have the Spirit. So what I'm arguing is that Acts shouldn't be taken as a normative pattern because of its time of transition, but even more, there are specific verses that show us that all believers, no matter their state, whether they're new believers or old believers, or anywhere in between, uh, no matter their state, they have the Holy Spirit, and they're not waiting for a second blessing or a second work of grace, however you may define it. We get everything at the beginning. We get it all. <laughs> we get all the Spirit. Well, and and to that point, then, I, I think I think it would be important for, for us to, to just go on and state that we can, based on what you just said, we do experience the work of the Spirit in greater or lesser moments as we are living holy or we are, you know, rebelling or, and therefore we're quenching the Spirit. So, so yes, while, while we may experience that, um, there's a difference between getting the Spirit versus experiencing the Spirit's work in, right. our, in our lives. Right. What is the baptism of the Spirit? And then we can follow that up with, after we define it, what are some of the ways people have understood it throughout church history? Okay, so I, I think the best way to understand the baptism of the Spirit is that it's, it's referring to the reception of the Spirit at conversion. So when you're converted, you receive the Spirit. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is. Now, uh, there's been, we're Baptist and we're Reformed, and most of the time, Reformed people are consistent in this, but we have our little <laughs> tweaks. Let me share with you some of the ideas, things that I've looked up as far as what others have said, and then we'll talk about a minority report, I guess, among Reformed. So, John Grudem says that the baptism of the Spirit indicates that Wayne. it occurs at conversion. Further, Wayne he Grudem, says, buddy. What? I said Wayne, because John Grudem, he's playing football or he's coaching football. Did I say John Grudem? Yes, John yes you did. Grudem. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> God help me. <laughs> John Grudem's informing our theology. <laughs> yeah, the former Raiders coach and apparently a racist. He has a lot to say about the baptism of the Spirit. <laughs> Wayne Grudem. Anyway, Wayne Grudem argues that the baptism of the Spirit occurs at conversion. Further, he says that all the Corinthians were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the result was that they became members of the body of Christ. Baptism in the Holy Spirit refers to all that the Holy Spirit does at the beginning of our Christian lives, but this means that it cannot refer to an experience after conversion. Hmm. I, I think he's kind of unique in that, because that's yeah, not what is. the others said and that's not what just what you said tim so well no but he is unique in that right so he is he's he is unique in that in in that sense and that's why he would fall into this charismatic reformed strange little bubble john calvin matthew henry and john MacArthur all teach that the baptism of the spirit is connected to the union the spirit accomplishes 
And you see that clearly in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, that spirit connects us to Christ and the spirit connects us to one another. So we're united to one one another. So there's a unity of believers with Christ and with one another that is a result of the work of the spirit. And then John Gill finally considers it to be the grace of the spirit and regeneration and sanctification. So obviously Gill would disagree with uh, Wayne Grudem on that uh, because he he says it refers to sanctification, which has to do with our Christian life and experience after conversion. At minimum, then, I think it refers to the receiving the Spirit at conversion, but it also involves our sanctification and ongoing union with Christ and with other believers. This, I think, is pretty typical for Baptists and Reformed to view it in this way. There is a brother, namely Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who has a a different view on these matters. Now, is it filling of the Spirit or baptism of the Spirit that he differs? baptism. Yeah, it's baptism of the Spirit. So Tim's going to help us with that. So Lloyd-Jones really does fall into a very um, strange category. Matter of fact, he does have some similarities with John Owen, but... I mean, Owen doesn't go as far as 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 Lloyd Jones. So if I if I had to, so let me say this: Lloyd Lloyd Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones was was perhaps one of the greatest pastors, preachers of God's word in the early mid 1900s. So he's a, a great man of God, but he did have some very strange views on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think if we had to put them into like some key bullet points, and we can expound on these if you want to, but. The first, so there'd be a couple things. One, he would say that not every every Christian gets the gets the Holy Spirit, but not every Christian experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He would also say that obviously it's not um, the same as conversion. He would say that it's a. Um, Uh, It's an experience that we get, but this is where he's different from the main charismatics today. He would say that, and and he uses, uh, I think, as his background, the first great awakening with what happened in in New Hampshire and and in the Northeast there. Basically, he says that what happens is when the, the Spirit baptizes people right before or right at the start of a, of a great revival and a great holiness movement, if you will. Um, so, so again, he, he's going to connect it back to the special movement of holiness. And, and so not, uh, not speaking in tongues, he, he doesn't, uh, he is very different than charismatics. Although I, I think there are some who would, who would say um, he was the father of father of modern Charismatics in Great Britain, but but he does he is distinguished in that he he it's not the gifts of the Spirit that he that he focuses on, but rather the results of what happens as the Spirit comes upon a believer in a in a in a special way or a group of believers in a special way, then holiness revival uh, things like that occur. Uh, and again, pull, pulling back on, on, or going back toward I think what was experienced by you know John Wesley. Uh, Whitfield um, and these guys in the first and second great awakening, I think really seems to be the backdrop in which he, in which he does it, uh, in which he, he pulls this out. I would also say that with, with regards to Lloyd Jones, I know that there have been some reform brothers who, who are very uncomfortable with the reality that Lloyd Jones would be considered a, a charismatic, but I, I think it's it's wrong to put him into the view of of where I would fall, which is to say that the supernatural gifts have ceased. 
he would say that they have ceased unless there is a significant work of the Holy Spirit in, uh, in the church. Um, and then he did believe in, in certain supernatural works of the spirit. Again, connecting that back to revival, connecting that back to, I think, more of the, uh, the dead or uh, as, as, as opposed to the dead orthodoxy that he saw in his day, lifeless preaching. Um, and so he would connect baptism of the Holy Spirit mainly to uh, guys even like um, Charles Spurgeon, as I said, uh, George Whitfield. Uh, and, and some of the uh, John Wesley and, and the, the powerful uh, men of God who preached the word of God. So uh, Lloyd Jones was a very, uh, he was inconsistent and <laughs> I, I love him and I, I love his, I love his preachings. Uh, you know, you can go to the MLJ trust and, and still hear him preach and he does a fantastic job. I love it, but, but he's very inconsistent when it comes to these, but, these things. I do have a question about that. So it sounds like, that he's not arguing that it's like a, a personal uh, second blessing as much as a church-wide second blessing almost. Yeah. I mean, it seems, and, and again, I mean, you'll have different people who will come up with different, with different shading on this, but yes, I, I think that is the case is that Lloyd Jones certainly would, would say that it is, can, it, 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 it is experienced by the individual, but generally in a much broader sense as the spirit moves in a local right. congregation or in a region where God's people are, are experiencing, you know, a, a special. Right. Okay. So it, it sounds like it's, it's connected more to revivalism than, than personal conversion is. Yeah. And really J.I. Packer, he, uh, of course, J.I. Packer uh, knew um, Martin Lloyd-Jones and, and J.I. Packer, actually, he is the one that we probably today fit um, more in line with, you know, with popularizing the view, the more prevalent reform view of, you know, we receive everything we we are going to receive with the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion. Whereas Martin Lloyd Jones vehemently disagreed with that uh, and rejected rejected that teaching altogether. So, well, it makes me sad to disagree with Martin Lloyd Jones, but <laughs> well, and and let me say this too: that there's one other point that I do need to make with with Lloyd Jones. Lloyd-Jones tended to connect assurance of salvation with baptism of the Holy Spirit. He tended to say, as the Spirit, once, so we, we experience different levels of assurance of our salvation, and the, the Christian who is struggling with the assurance of salvation, it's because he, has, he, he hasn't experienced that, that baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because if he had, then there would be no struggle at all with the assurance of, of one's salvation. So that, that's a little bit of a different, unique view as well. Yeah, but what we're arguing, that the typical normal Reformed view is that baptism of the Spirit happens at conversion, unites us to Christ and to other believers, and is part of our sanctification to make us holy. That's that is what we're what we believe according to Scripture is proper understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yes. So, uh, and and if someone does want to probably take a little bit more of a view, a study on on Lord Jones's view, and and A. W. Tozer, although he wasn't reformed, would have probably fit into this same category. You can read Joy Unspeakable by Martin Lloyd Jones. That that really does, I guess, is the heart of him laying that out. So just to throw that out there. Thing. All right. So now that we kind of have a handle on what baptism of the spirit is, let's transition for the rest of this episode and talk about filling of the spirit. So what is filling of the spirit? The best I can understand from scripture 
is that the filling of the Spirit primarily has to do with empowering of believers. It also has to do with producing abilities and virtue. It also and it involves the Spirit's control. And this aspect of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, seems to be throughout the Christian's life, and it ebbs and flows. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens one time, and there's no degrees, according to our understanding, okay? Or baptized in the Spirit, or you're not, okay? But the filling of the Spirit, you can be, at times, in a greater way filled with the Spirit than at other times, according to what we see in the Bible. And so then it has to do with empowerment, with virtue, also with control. So that's the main idea there. Obviously, because it's a work of the Holy Spirit, it's connected to the other works of the Holy Spirit. It's not as if this is unique or anything. For example, if you look in Acts, the thing that you see again and again in the book of Acts is that the people are, someone is preaching and they're filled with the Spirit and they're given, they're empowered to perform miracles. They're empowered to preach boldly, all those kind of things. To apply it today means if if you're sharing the gospel with someone and and you're able to boldly do it, we can ascribe that to the filling of the Holy Spirit. First, it's about empowerment, but we'll talk about the other things. Do, do you have anything to add, Tim? No, no, I, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think you pretty much covered it. I mean, it's for everybody. You know, there's no there's no special, you know, there's no special followers of Jesus. But yeah, no, I think you covered it. We see that in the book of Acts. Then the thing about abilities and virtue, the spirit produces ease as well, and to be filled with the spirit. In Acts chapter six, the church is looking for men who will serve the poor of the church. Okay. They they have specific requirements. They have to be filled with the Spirit and with wisdom, okay? I don't think that the primary thing that the church was looking for in order to take care of uh, the widows was somebody who could boldly preach the gospel or someone who was able to perform miracles. Now, those things may have been useful, but you don't need those things in order to take care of widows in, in their poverty. John Gill says of this passage, that they want men who are full of the gifts and the graces of the Spirit. They want men who have ability and virtue. They want godly men. Men who are filled with the Spirit are godly men. That's what the church wanted to take care of these widows. Yes, often in Acts, it's about being filled with the Spirit means that you're going to preach boldly, give prophecy, and perform miracles. But I, I don't think that's what what the church had in mind in Acts chapter 6 when they were fulfilling the role or filling the role of the first deacons. I think they wanted somebody who had the ability and had virtue so that they could faithfully perform this office and this duty. From there, we get the idea of the Spirit producing abilities and virtue. So is there anything else that the filling of the Spirit communicates to us besides power and producing abilities and virtue. Yeah, one of the most famous passages is in Ephesians, where it tells us to be filled with the Spirit rather than to be drunk with wine. And there's an analogy there that points to the idea that just as alcohol, when you consume too much, controls your mind and your actions, we are to give be filled with the Spirit so the Spirit controls 
our mind and our actions. The idea then is, and the result of that feeling in Ephesians is that we sing, give thanks, and submit in our relationships. That's what the whole passage is about. So it really works out in worship and practical living for the glory of God to be filled with the Spirit and to be under His control. It's all about submitting to the Lord. So if we're submitting to the Lord and worshiping Him, then that's because the Spirit is filling us to do that. On that point of Ephesians 5, um, there, there's, uh, there's a couple different things there uh, that I think are, are really important for us to point out. Two in particular. One, we are told to be filled, um, which is passive. And then we've got, um, we also have be filled, which is an imperative. So right. um, we have a passive imperative, meaning that that we need to, I guess, a literal translation. If I, if I remember my Greek right here, it's be being filled. It's yeah. basically be being filled by the Holy Spirit. And so we, we but we are commanded. To, to do that. And, and it's, it's a passive command, but it's still a command that, that we're commanded. So, so we submit ourselves to Christ and, and he fills us. I didn't put this in the notes, but maybe we can do this quickly because we're short on time. How does the work of the spirit differ in the new te- from the old Testament uh, or does it? I think that's an important question to consider. So Tim, you want to go first and then I'll tell you the right answer. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say there are some, the spirit, he works in the same way. Hold on. So the typical answer, right. That I've, I've heard from time I went to church is that the difference is the permanence of the spirit, right? Yeah. but In the old Testament, he came and went, he didn't permanently indwell anyone. And he didn't indwell everybody. That was that was the difference that I was well, always. But I, I don't think taught. I don't think as you look at the Old Testament, I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I think that you see the Spirit working in 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 a very similar way to the way He works in the New Testament. Now, I, I think having preached through First Samuel and getting ready, gearing up to preach through Second Samuel, I, I would say based upon what I have seen in those two books in the Old Testament is that when it talk when when the text talks about the spirit departing or coming and going uh or even in judges you know with Samson it has more to do with ability um and it has more to do so so when it talks about Samson you know that uh that his hair was cut and you know the spirit uh you know that his strength was gone the spirit basically departed the spirit wasn't wasn't gone forever um, because I mean, ultimately his hair grew back and, and the spirit enabled him to do what he ended up doing. And, and so again, I think it, I, I think we do a disservice when we say that the spirit works differently in the old Testament than the new Testament, because the spirit's work has always been the same. It, it just has to do, I think more, at least it seems to be, um, it has to do more with, with ability and anointing for a cert, for a particular task that, that, that the spirit anoints that person to do. Right. So I think, what I would say is when it comes to our salvation, so everything we've talked about to this point, the Spirit works in the same way. No one's getting saved without the regenerating work of the Spirit. Right. No one is being sanctified without the work of the Holy Spirit. In that sense, the Spirit is precisely the same, working precisely the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New. Okay, But when you're talking about Samson, is that's a good example it sounds to me more like what's happening with Samson is he's being filled with the spirit at certain moments. 
mm. like we see in the book of Acts. Yeah. It sounds to me that sounds very similar, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. The only difficulty you really get into is why Saul, Saul experienced <laughs> what he experienced. Yeah. But again, I think I think you can still you can still say the same thing of what you just said with Samson. It has to do with with the feeling and the experience of the spiritual. Now, I do think though that there's a difference when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That because the Old Testament prophesies it as something that's going to happen in the future. John the Baptist prophesies something as in the future. Jesus says it's happening sometime in the future. So it does seem to me that there's a difference there when sure. it comes to when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If for no other reason one of the things we said about baptism of the Spirit is that it unifies us, right? Every believer has the Spirit, so we're united to Christ and united to each other. But in Old Testament, it was only Jews, right? Yeah. Now, Jew and Gentile, or primarily Jews, now Jew and Gentile, and even though there was Gentiles in the Old Testament, it's nothing compared to what's happened now in the New Covenant times, where the church is predominantly Gentile. I think you see it. A, a greater not number of people but more diversity in people yeah well paul talks about paul talks about this exact thing in ephesians where he talks about christ having taken down the the partition the middle wall between jew and gentile which is exactly what you're talking about and then he connects that to the work of the spirit and the application of salvation to jew and gentile alike and placing them together into that one tree that he would talk about in romans um, that that spiritual right. that spiritual tree, you know, that that vine, which is Christ. So so yeah, I, I agree with that. If there was a baptism of spirit in the Old Testament, I think the difference in the New is that the Spirit is poured out universally. Acts chapter two quotes from Joel, right? Yeah. He talks about all men, people from every station of life. Where in the Old Testament, it was. It was prophets, priests, and kings for the most part. It was primarily with Jews. It just seems that there's, in the New Testament, that the the limits that were there in the old, the, the limits have just been blown off. The doors have been blown open, and, it, and it's been universalized. Universalized in the sense that it's it's not with one nation, it's with all nations. Not that every single individual on planet earth has the spirit we know only believers have the spirit but it seems to be universalized and that that to me seems to be the major difference from the work of the spirit in the old testament to the new testament is the universality of his work yeah i i, I would agree with that i think that's an important thing because that often comes up and tim and i and, and probably matthew were taught the same thing that the spirit comes and goes as he pleases in the old testament and the work of the spirit is completely different in the new. And I just, I don't buy that. I think the work of the spirit is only new in the sense of being universal, but I know you're supposed to ask questions today, Matthew, but uh, anything else to wrap up, Tim? No, I mean, I, I would just simply offer a word of caution to, to some of our more charismatic brothers and sisters and, and you know, and, 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 and the Baptists too, and Reformed Baptists. And, and that I would say just universally to us all, you know, that we need to be careful not to abuse the work of the spirit in our lives, um, whether that is to, to simply deny his work 
or that is to overemphasize his work, you know, and, and over, you know, maybe, maybe come to a point of, of abusing the spirit that way too. So I would just simply just, just that, that's sort of my conclusion is, you know, let's be careful no matter where we fall on this, that we're not abusing the Holy Spirit's work. Yeah. I, I think an important thing is to make sure that you're being biblical. Yeah. Follow the Bible, not your feelings, what you've been taught, be biblical about it. Far too many, and I, I've said this time and time again throughout uh, this series, far too many people think the Spirit's work has to do with our emotions and spontaneity, and um, not that the Spirit can't work in that way, but to make that the exclusive way the Spirit work is not good, and it, it's not biblical either. That's not what the Bible teaches so we need to make sure we're being biblical. That's not limiting God or limiting the spirit. It's <laughs> the Bible is describing what the work of God is and and it helps us to trace and see the work of God in our lives and hearts to follow what the Bible says. So amen to your warning. So those are good words for us to end on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast ministry of Two Rivers Community Church. For more information about Two Rivers, you can find it on our website at www.tworiverscc.org. We look forward to your questions, your comments, and even your dreaded hate mail at ordinaryfellowship at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook at Ordinary Fellowship and like, subscribe, and rate this podcast on whatever service you listen to us. But for now, we thank you once again for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, where we're striving to have spiritual conversations for practical Christian living.